A few of our listeners I know will know this story because uh, it has been told before. Um, it is, in fact, a true story for the most part, um, with maybe slight embellishments for drama. But the central action that uh, that drives the story is one hundred percent factual and has been verified by multiple witnesses. Um, and in fact, I was in the building at the time, so I, I heard the firsthand reports immediately. Correct. Um, this isn't this isn't like a, a legendary encounter that I heard of only much later. Um, so in the year of our Lord, 2004, um, I was working as an assistant manager in a grocery store in the city of Omaha and my, uh, my team in the grocery store, the, the people that I managed were the evening stocking crew, um, who had a variety of duties, primarily stocking store shelves, um, not stocking people, um, S-T-O-C-K-I-N-G. want to be clear on that. Very good. Um, among the various things that we did uh, was we managed sort of the uh, uh, the backlog of products in the store, the overstock. Um, if you've ever been in a retail environment, not just grocery stores, but a lot of stores, you're probably familiar with the phenomenon of top stock, which is uh, one of many names for the stuff that's up above the products you can actually buy. Usually there's mm-hmm. a top shelf, sometimes a little bit bigger, usually just out of reach of the average person, mm-hmm. with no prices on it that just holds overflow, yes. you know, things that wouldn't, wouldn't work on the shelf. And in craft stores, it's usually Christmas stuff. Indeed. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. Uh, in sporting goods and toy stores, it's often bikes um, mm-hmm. are the thing you'll see the most up there. Uh, but in all kinds of stores, what you'll see is overflow, stuff that wouldn't fit on the shelves. And so uh, a couple times a week as a routine and uh, whenever it would fit in or we didn't have any other work to do throughout the week, we would do what we called running top stock, which is a process that involves two people, one up on a ladder, picking products up off the top of the shelf, uh, reading their label, and then one down on the floor, locating the product on the shelf and seeing how many we needed in order to fill in the shelf. Mm. Um, it could be done by one person, usually most efficient by two. So it's something we also tried to do mostly when the store was closed and sparsely populated because between the latter and the shouting back and forth and handing products up and down, you know, it, it caused traffic problems in the aisles. Mm-hmm. Um, our story, though, is a day when that wasn't the case, when Top Stock was being run during shopping hours, uh, albeit late in the day, uh, just out of necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, the particulars of that are lost to history, um, slash the day-to-day running of a grocery store isn't really interesting enough to remember mm-hmm. nine years later. Uh, but I do know it was during business hours because one of the principals involved uh, wouldn't have been in the store otherwise. So our story involves three characters – uh, three people, two of whom were people who are on the team that I managed and one of whom was a cashier. Uh, on the team that I managed the was the first of our characters, who we will call Sean, because that is his name. And uh, Sean was, was, without a doubt, the most charismatic and most talented of the people on my team. He was a great stocker of groceries and hopefully has gone on to many much more exciting things than that because, you know, really he'd be wasted if he was still in that industry. Um, the second is the aforementioned cashier, uh, a young lady named Kylie, who's about three years younger than Sean, 18 at the time of this story. Uh, and the third person was another member of my crew named Dean, who was the gentleman down on the floor um, helping Sean run the top stock in this case. And Dean, I'm not really going to tell you anything more about because he's not actually important to the story. Mm-hmm. 
So the one thing you need to understand about Kylie and Sean, before I go too much further, is that they are both young people, and that Sean uh, is a single man at this point, and that Kylie is a fairly attractive young woman. And so their relationship in the store, their working relationship, was a little bit, shall we say, flirtatious. Uh, And of course, as most listeners in Western culture probably know, the way that usually manifests itself is a guy is kind of a jerk to a girl. Mm -hmm. Um, So in this particular instance, the way that Sean would usually flirt with Kylie was to tease her. And most days this was fine because Kylie could give as good as she got. Um, She was quick-witted and fast on her feet and, you know, knew how to handle Sean. Mm Mm-hmm. This particular day, though, was not a great day. Um, Kylie was not in a good mood and uh, had just gotten off work and was moving through the store, picking up a few items before she left to go home. And she just she was was not in the mood for any of Sean's crap. Um, as she's making her way through the store, Sean and Dean are running top stock in the baking goods aisle. Hmm. They'd just gotten up to muffins, muffin mixes in particular. And as you can imagine, if you've ever bought muffin mixes, there's a pretty wide variety. So it was taking some time. There are banana nut muffins. There are various sort of maple oat brand muffins. There are all kinds of berries and fruit muffins, chocolate chip muffins, and so on. Uh, As Kylie comes into the aisle, she comes around the corner. Sean happens to see her, and she happens to see him. And their eyes meet, and he opens his mouth to say something. But for whatever reason... The look that was on her face, maybe he was just paying attention all day and knew that she was having a lousy day. He thought better of it and shut his mouth and just gave her a little nod and a smile. And she went about her way going through the aisle. Sean, meanwhile, reaches for the next item that he needs to to tell Dean about so Dean can see if we need it on the shelf. And it happens to be a blueberry muffin mix. So he picks up the box, holds it aloft so Dean can see it, and he says, Blueberry. At this point, Kylie is about two-thirds of the way down the aisle, and she stops dead in her tracks, whips around, stamps her foot, and says, You're a blueberry! (laughs) And storms out of the aisle. You are listening to Priority, a podcast about choices, limitations, and getting stuff done. Priority is hosted by Katie Leibman and her brother, Max Leibman. That's me. Today's episode is entitled, You're a Blueberry. For complete show notes, including links to anything we discuss on the podcast today, visit us online at priority.fm slash 25. (laughs) Uh, There's two reasons I love this story so much. One of them is, it's, it's... It's a... Really funny punchline that still probably shouldn't take that much setup to get to, um, which is a perfect <laughs> joke for me. <laughs> <laughs> but the other reason I like it is because I think it has a very good lesson. And the reason why I said several of our listeners will know it is I've told this I've told this story before at staff training uh, for a Nebraska leadership seminar, specifically because I think it has a really good lesson in it. And that is there's a reason why Kylie assumed when Sean said blueberry – um, she was presuming to her, to the back of her head, why she assumed it was him giving him some kind of nonsensical crap. Right. Um, because that was her expectation. Mm-hmm. Because that was the nature of their relationship. Because she figured that's what he was going to do. 
Uh, and, and as I said, you know, she probably had given him some kind of look because that's what she expected him to do. And to his credit, he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. He didn't say a word to her. He just went back to what he was doing, which was his job. Mm-hmm. But yeah. in the course of so doing, she expected so strongly that he was going to that even though there's no way in the world anyone she knew was ever going to call her Blueberry. Oh, my gosh. Especially not to her face. Uh, <laughs> in in her mind, she created this insult and this, this mean exchange with this guy she just did not have time for mm-hmm. that day mm-hmm. because she expected it. Right. Well, and I, and I know that mindset um, – Kylie got into that, that, you know, we do so often where <laughs> I'm just sort of narrating in my head things that could happen. You know, I'm walking down the street and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. I bet that guy's dog is going to bark at me. Oh, I bet this is going to happen. <laughs> oh, I bet this is going to happen, you know. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, I bet Sean's going to say something stupid. I just bet he's going to say something stupid. So then whatever he says, you are already primed to hear something stupid. <laughs> oh, totally. Yeah. Blueberry or otherwise. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Any, uh, I'm trying to think, is there anything about that story that's changed for you over time? (laughs) Well, and I don't um, mean like you changing details. Right. I mean, there's, there are, there are embellishments about the store and, and about Kylie and Sean that I leave out at this point. (laughs) Um, but uh, you know, for the most part, no. It's it's. I still think it's the same lesson it always was. <laughs> um, I am more familiar with the the social psychology terminology for you know what what that exchange you know kind of signifies. Um, the the <laughs> expectation confirmation, mm-hmm. and, yeah. Um, the various other other things that were at play there, yeah. Um, but you know, really, I regarded the same as I ever did, which is. You know, there's there's all the we we often um, dismissively uh, make fun of the various you know you create your own reality lines of thought and self help, but there is there are a few ways in which that kind of thinking is actually very true and very powerful, and one of those is social reality. Oh, you yeah. really do make a lot of your social reality yourself, mm-hmm. um, and this is a perfect example. Um, no one in the world had anything mean to say to Kylie that day as she made her way through the store. <laughs> but she had a very upsetting exchange that she created mm-hmm. that even involved other people mm-hmm. that she created out of whole yeah. cloth in her own mind. And I don't, I don't hold it against her at all. That, that's maybe one thing that I would, I would say has changed a little bit for me is I would probably be more careful um, in, in telling that story to audiences nowadays to make clear that Kylie is, or at least was, I'm assuming she still is, um, you know, very sharp, socially together, you know, with it person. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not a crazy person, you know, right. hearing things that aren't there or being super defensive. Right. I had never seen or heard anything like this from her or anybody else, <laughs> frankly. Which signals I mean, again, I've, like I've, what a day. <laughs> yeah, I've been. I mean, I've been around people who hear somebody say something and assume that they're talking to them, and like you know, in whatever context is in that person's head, it's an insult. But never mm-hmm. like you know, blueberry. Man, you're a blueberry. <laughs> Man, man, man. Wow. Hmm. Jeez. No, okay. I thought of a, uh, I mean, it's related. I thought of a story and I don't know yet whether I want you to cut this. (laughs) We'll find out (laughs) how it sounds when I. You can tell it and we can decide later. Yeah, fair enough. No, I. The theme music has to go in somewhere around here. Oh my God. Yeah. So then if we come back and I haven't told the story, then listeners will know that it's been cut. So it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) Ask me about it later, listeners. Um, No. So that last part, I didn't think of it till just now, but that last thing you said made me think of um, 
there was one time uh, when I was walking from um, the office where I worked in Lincoln back to my vehicle, which was parked several blocks away in a residential area. Um, and this was um, along a, a busier, um, you know, 40-mile-an-hour road in Lincoln um, that I had to cross and walk along a little bit. Um, in my experience at that place, um, when I would make that, that sojourn from my office to my car and vice versa, I would get catcalled or honked at maybe once a week or once every two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I remember you writing about this online. Oh, sure, sure, sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, this was the story. This is the story. So again, like <laughs> listeners, you may have heard this before. But this has sort of haunted me, and it, this story puts it in perspective. Your story, the blueberry story, puts it in perspective. Um, after that happened, so I guess I should tell it for those who haven't heard. Um, one day I was getting really close to my car, and um, which was parked sort of near an intersection. A, a cherry picker, you know, one of those, the I don't even know how to say cherry picker, the, the lifty bucket truck. <laughs> um, yes, the lifty bucket truck. Yes, the lifty bucket truck. Um, one of those um, from a, a tree trimming service was stopped at the stop sign near where I was parked, and I was very close to my car, almost there. And the man who's driving has his arm out the window, but then all of a sudden he's leaning and yelling at me. And in my head, I thought he was yelling things about my appearance. And I can't remember now. I remembered at the time, but I don't remember now what I thought I heard. Mm -hmm. Um, And he's sort of whooping and hollering and just being generally obnoxious. And it was awful. But then in that split second after... I realized that was a business vehicle. There was a name on the side. So I got in my car, which, again, I was very close to, and I followed him around the block (laughs) so that I could get the name of the business, um, if not the phone number. But I got enough information, you know, passing him in traffic, um, that when I got stopped again, I called in, asked to speak to a manager owner, and reported the incident. I was like, hey, this really unpleasant thing happened. This man yelled things at me. Um, very uncomfortable, blah, 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 blah. I just wanted you to know. And I, I got a great apology. He said nothing like that had ever happened to his knowledge with any of his employees. Um, he was very sorry, and he was going to, to talk to the employee because he knew who it was based on the location. Um, sure. So then later that evening, you know, it's maybe 5 or 6 o'clock that night, um, I missed a call back from that same number. And there was no message left. So I decided to not call back. So I never did. Mm-hmm. I never heard what that call back was about. Um, so I wondered if maybe it was, I mean, it could have been anything from the guy can't figure out what happened because the employee denied it. Or maybe it was the employee himself and his you know, boss said, you know, you need to apologize or else or something. I don't know. And I will never know. Um, but having that call back with no message made me wonder, and I can't remember when I thought of this, but at some point I was thinking, I was like, what if I didn't hear what I thought I heard? What if, mm. for instance, that day I was carrying um, a little Cubs lunch pail? Um, it was like, oh my God, what if he was a Cubs fan and he was yelling something about my lunch pail? You know, mm-hmm. like, oh my God. And then when I realized that, I was like, oh great, now I've got this little earworm about this and I'm never gonna (laughs) stop thinking about this like oh my god what if I was wrong like what if I got him in trouble and he I don't know 
But then it's like, no, I was so, I don't know. It was really hard. Because looking back, it's like, I don't know. And I know enough about human memory to be like, well, that, that moment is lost forever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, sure. I'm not going to know. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, no, it's, um, <clears throat> yeah, there's, there's a couple of things in that story that we could, we could get into, one of which we should probably table, and that's, it's not just about expectations, but also assumptions, mm-hmm. um, which, which might, I mean, that might come up in the course of this, but, like, I think there's a whole world of, of stereotype and, you know, mm-hmm. um, although as I'm thinking about it, I think that does play strongly into what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, also just, just straight up, like we talked about with the blueberry story, like you may have constructed, um, a whole, a whole incident that, that wasn't actually happening. If he was yelling something slightly different than what you thought you heard that actually wasn't about you, you know, if he was lost or, you know, he thought you were in some kind of danger. Right. Um, if he liked your bag and wanted to buy one for his wife, I don't know. Right. Um, all of which is a lot more fanciful than he was catcalling or just being a jackass. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as somebody who is, um, I've, I've, I have taken a lot of walks in urban environments, shall we say. <laughs> I am a, 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 a vigorous and enthusiastic pedestrian. I pedester about, um, <laughs> I have been not catcalled because <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm sure that happens, but it has not happened to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've been shouted various things from, you know, various cars sure. passing me by. Most of which are generally kind of like weird or jackassy comments from teenagers or drunk people. Oh um, but every once in a while, like I have a, I have a shirt from Walt Disney World that is, uh, Kermit the Frog Green that has Kermit's mouth and eyes painted on the front of it. Mm-hmm. And it's huge. Like the entire shirt is Kermit's face. Um, it's, it's hilarious and weird looking. And I was wearing it on a long summer walk in the summer of 2013 and somebody leaned his head out the window of his car as he was driving by and screamed at the top of his lungs, I love your shirt. <laughs> that's much um, better. I mean, that's still a little abrupt. Right. But, <laughs> but the reason, the reason I bring, yeah, oh, it took me, definitely oh took goodness. me aback, but I was what? super happy about it. Right. Yeah. Right. I, I Instagrammed a picture of myself and said, you still got it, Max. Um, <laughs> but the reason I bring that one up is. In addition to the ones where people are yelling mean or stupid things and the ones where people are yelling very nice things like, I love your shirt, <laughs> there's also a large category of yelling out of cars that is completely incoherent. Yeah, And for sure. I generally construe those in my mind as being negative. I generally mm-hmm. think the same things I think when somebody yells something mean or stupid out of a car, which is, I hope they run into a tree and die in the next 10 minutes. Um because frankly, listeners, if you all mean things out the window of your car at strangers, you deserve that. Oh um, <laughs> not, that not that I overreact much to <laughs> things yelled outside of the car. Um, but the the there is a large a large portion of them though that are incoherent that I don't know what they said right. and may as well have been I like your shirt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but in that situation, how would you know? Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm usually not wearing the Kermit shirt, so that's probably usually not it. But, you know, who knows? <laughs> yeah, no, and I, I get the the worldview that you should always um, hope for the best out of people and believe that you know people are are largely good. Um, but it is kind of interesting. Something I was thinking about um, as we've been talking um, is that. So often it feels like one of the one of the strengths I've discovered 
in adulthood is going into things with no expectations whatsoever. That, mm-hmm. that has been uh, so helpful to me in so many ways. Um, sure. I don't know. And not that I, that's not to say I don't look forward to things or I don't trust people. Um, mm-hmm. But in situations where you really don't or can't know what, how things are going to go, um, just sort of being open to that experience has gotten me pretty far, I feel like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a book that I, I, I think I would recommend anybody who hears this. Um, if you have a smartphone, tablet, or e-reader, download a sample of this book as an ebook before you buy it, because I, I think there's a large swath of people who will not like the style of it at all, but mm-hmm. I like the book overall, so I'm going to recommend it. Uh, it's by Dennis Prager, and it is called Happiness is a Serious Problem, hmm. and it's a fairly conservative, mostly philosophical, not research-based, you know, meditation on the subject of happiness from a... Um, a guy who his, his career, and this is part of why I say download a sample first. Um, he, he's like a conservative talk show host kind of guy. Um, a little more thoughtful than like, you know, he's not Rush Limbaugh. Um, so don't, you know, scrub that out of your mind, but he's not that far off from, from a more, uh, sincere and nice version of Rush's worldview, shall we say. Um, Anyhow, the book itself, though, is not about that. The book is just about happiness. Um, it's sort of a philosophical treatise on happiness and how to get it. And one of the things he spends a lot of time on in that book is expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of what you say there, it's it's often not about um, – it's often it's – often, it's often is not, you know, when we're unhappy about how something turned out because we have a different expectation yeah. than how it turned out. And one way to avoid that trap is not to have an expectation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I dare say, like, you know, somebody might say, well, we could, we could do even better. What if we always expected something negative? Then even when it's neutral, <laughs> we're going to be pleasantly surprised. I wouldn't recommend that for some other reasons. See also the blueberry story at the beginning. <laughs> if you go looking for things wrong, you will find them. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But an even-keeled mm-hmm. openness, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. What else you got? Uh, well, we can keep riffing on that a little bit on expectations. Um, you know, both on, both on what you said about not keeping expectations and on, on Kylie's very specific expectation that led to her saying, you're a blueberry very angrily. Mm -hmm. Um, but, uh, one thing that popped into my head when you were saying that about, about how important it is to go into things without expectations, I was thinking about vacations flashed into my head, but then I really started thinking about weddings. Um, Mm Ooh. And how in that situation, you know, I you t- you distinguish between having expectations and looking forward to something. And I think a wedding is a great example of somewhere where it, making that distinction is really good. Like, it is going to be great to anticipate being happy. It's great to anticipate being happy on your wedding day. Mm-hmm. And it is great to plan things that you think will make you and the people you love happy on your wedding day. Yeah. Um, if you have a very specific expectation, the more specific expectation you have about how that wedding day is going to go, though, the more opportunities you're going to have to notice things that are not where they should be that day. Mm. Um, you know, you are creating then flaws for you to fixate on. Whereas if you just kind of go in and run with it and let things go how they're going to go, um, I think you're more likely to be as happy as you expected to on your wedding day. Mm-hmm. No, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I hear you there. If you if you have a specific, if you expect that you are not going to notice 
what is going on among the gathered um, uh, guests, congregants, family, friends who are in the church. If you expect that you're going to be so swept up you're not going to see that, or you expect to be so happy that that's likely, you know, that expectation can be met. If you expect that nobody's baby is going to cry during your beautiful, perfectly crafted ceremony, mm-hmm. um, you have a rude awakening coming. Mm-hmm. And the more clearly you have you have fixated that, that image in your mind, um, I think the more likely you will be to notice when it goes wrong, because it will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in that way, it almost feels like being real about your expectations is, is being good at those reality checks. Um, Mm -hmm. being real about things that really could happen. Um, so I guess, I don't know. I'm thinking about how you can temper your expectations. You can expect that you're going to have a great day, but you better be real about great day Mm -hmm. might also include crying baby. Cause if there's a baby there, you can't control that baby. Oh yeah. You can't smother a baby. No deal with it. (laughs) Not like that. (laughs) Never shake a baby. Never shake a baby. What are you doing? Yeah. 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 For sure. For sure. <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> Jinx. Ah! Um, <laughs> we need a hiatus. <laughs> <laughs> Getting weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, and along those lines with the, with the negative expectations, um, you know, I mentioned at the beginning, this is this one of the ways that, that the create your own reality thing um, I think has some traction also relates into the, to this, this sort of situation. Um, and that is our social expectations too. Um, you can do a lot of harm to yourself and your relationships by having negative expectations in social situations. Mm. Um, I referenced a study previously that I should have looked up for today. I just now thought of it again, though. Um, I will I will relink in show notes to both the study and the the article in Psychology Today that talked about it. Um, with uh, I think this one kind of freaked you out a little bit. It was a study with, uh, of, of, I believe it was managers who were yes. interviewing female candidates. And the managers, the, the female candidates had no idea what the managers had been told about them. But some of the managers at random had been told that the candidate thought that the manager was attractive. Um, and in those circumstances, the manager was doing things in the course of the interview, saying things, doing things with their body language, tone of voice, et cetera. Um, that was eliciting flirtatious behavior from the interview subjects, mm-hmm. who again had no idea that the manager had been told anything about what the interview subject might have thought about the manager. Right. Um, and and third party, you know, viewers of the videotapes later said the same thing. Said, no, no, those those, you know, that that woman is definitely being more flirtatious than the previous one. Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, these third party viewers also had no idea what the managers had been told ahead of time. Right. Um, and also said whatever those managers were doing to elicit this was was subtle enough that those third party viewers also did not rate the managers as being any more flirtatious mm-hmm. and when yet, the female candidates mm-hmm. were and yet they were somehow causing it right exactly mm-hmm. now i don't think there's any kind of spooky action here i don't think this is this is law of attraction or esp <laughs> mind control i think it is in fact just subtle things involving body language tone of voice choice of words, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it, it's an example of, you know, if you go into a social situation with a certain expectation, you're going to elicit that behavior. A more blatant example, a negative example, rather than flirtation, uh, my social psychology textbook in college, which I don't remember the name of, but I'll link to in show notes, it was probably called Social Psychology. Um, I think Aronson worked on it, uh, along with two other people who I'm going to be embarrassed that I forgot their names oh, as my. soon as I look it up. Um 
but uh, it had a very good example of 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 this kind of phenomenon um, of how we elicit this kind of behavior in people. If you if if you see uh, someone you're acquainted with um, across an open space on campus and think to yourself. Oh, there she is. Oh, man, she is so stuck up. She never gives me the time of day. She never has anything nice to say to me. Uh, how do you think you're going to react to that person with your body language, eye contact, whether or not you greet them as mm-hmm. you get closer? And, of course, what's going to happen is that person who may have no opinion of you at all, who might actually like you, who might be a warm and friendly person, is going to see you avoiding eye contact, turning your body away, giving a cold shoulder, cold vibe. And is not going to be very friendly. Right. And it's just going to reinforce that because now they think you're unfriendly. So the next time you see them, no matter what you do, they're more likely to act mm-hmm. that way. Yeah. Um, no, I'm glad we bridged to um, the way you can cause this stuff in other people. Yeah. No, that in an interview one. Yeah. Definitely seemed spooky when I first heard it. Um, that so much was happening in those interactions to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, since then, so I'm borrowing this from, um, in the third episode of Invisibilia, um, titled how to become Batman. Um, they talked about a similar study. Um, in this case it was rats. Um, but other stories they were exploring, were trying to, um, apply these ideas to people too, um, about expectation. But in this one, they were talking about a study from, um, a guy in psychology named Robert Rosenthal who had, I think what they said was when he first did it, he wasn't, it wasn't an official experiment. He just did something in his lab overnight and just wanted to see what would happen. (laughs) And then he, (laughs) then he did a formal study when he realized, Oh yeah, there could be something here. And it was nothing, uh, uh, nothing creepy, um, nothing harmful to, to humans or animals. Um, but what he did was, um, among their laboratory rats, um, he went and put little signs above half of them that indicated that those rats were below average intelligence. They were a little slow. They were a little less skilled. Um, and put little signs above the other half of the rats that said that those rats were exceptional. They were very highly skilled. They were exceptional These rats. These are the rats of NIM. <laughs> These are the rats you are looking for. Um, when in reality, all of them were absolutely average rats. They were all comparable um, Probably bred to be average rats if these were rats in a lab. Right, right. No, they were absolutely for that purpose. Um, they were all meant to be similar. <laughs> um, <laughs> so he did this, and and then I'll jump ahead to the, the more formal study. Um, so the rats were to run a maze, and the participants were to come in and handle the rats and interact with them, um, and then describe how they thought the rats performed. Um And as you can imagine, based on everything we've been talking about, um, the rats that the participants perceived to be dumb did way worse. (laughs) Like they were described as being slower, but they also actually were performing worse. Um, Mm -hmm. The ones who were described as exceptional were handled more warmly um, and actually performed better in a statistically significant way. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So just absolutely fascinating. Um, But it makes sense because when you, I mean, this is all about perception, right? You perceive that something is a certain way and you are catering to that. So the, the implications for our social interactions are huge. Um, 
and it comes out in things like um, you won't, like you mentioned, you won't stand as close to people that you're not comfortable with or that you perceive as bad or stupid mm-hmm. or annoying or whatever. Um, right. In our case, in our culture, less eye contact, things like that. Um you know, mm-hmm. shorter, yeah, in, colder. In, in the case of in the case of a minority, you might suspect of of being more prone to crime. You wouldn't make eye contact, but you would definitely and conspicuously be keeping an eye on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know yeah. that kind of mm-hmm. thing, which probably won't make them steal anything from you, but it's certainly not going to make them treat you very nicely. Right. Right. Yeah. No, super interesting. Um. Yeah, so the other thing, and I think I, <laughs> I think I texted you about this too, because it was the first thing I thought of. Um, I'm also ripping from that episode of Invisibilia um, from NPR. Um, so there's this guy named Daniel Kish um, who is blind and has been, I think, um, from the time he was a toddler. I believe he had some sort of cancer in his eyes. Um, so he actually had his literal eyeballs removed um, at a very young age. Um, but Daniel Kish is famous. Um, he's done a lot of press, a lot of media stuff, um, not only with his organization, which is called World Access for the Blind, um, but one of the ways he's gotten attention for his efforts is he rides a bike. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Despite being completely blind, um, not even having physical eyeballs, um, he does things like rides a bike. He can navigate, um, an unfamiliar street, an unfamiliar, um, urban or rural setting. He can climb giant trees. He can do whatever. Um, and even the way I'm saying this right now is part of what this guy Kish is working against. So the fact that I'm pointing out a blind person can do blank as an exceptional thing is the thing that he's working against in the world. Um, so he is in, in, in line with, um, there's a behavioral scientist, um, named Robert Scott, um, who actually had a whole book about this in the eighties. Um, he's on board with this idea that although there are definitely, um, definite physical and psychological limitations because of physical blindness, he thinks that the limitations of blindness in society are largely a construct. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm remembering the phrase, and it might be a paraphrase that I've put on after the fact, but uh, blindness is a social construct. Yeah, is yeah. the phrase that was running through my mind. Mm-hmm. As you were, I, I did listen to the episode when it came out, but I haven't since. Yeah, no, and that's um, that's more so how the the behavioral scientist that Robert Scott, um, I think that was his sort of phrasing explicitly. Mm-hmm. Um, but Daniel Kish, at least in practice agrees. Um, so his whole thing is, um, <sighs> programs that are meant to help people who are blind so often put caps on their possibilities and therefore, you know, if you don't offer a possibility, it can't be a possibility. You know, if you tell a blind right. child that, he or she cannot or will not ever do something um, and convince mm-hmm. them of that, then you have cut that off from them, even if it could have been physically possible. Um, yeah. So he'll do things like, oh, and I haven't mentioned, his big thing is echolocation. So, um, and of course, I'll send you some links for this for show notes. Um, but he makes a clicking noise on the roof of his mouth with his tongue, sort of like, he describes it as if you were, you know, trying to, uh, pry peanut butter off of there. <laughs> um, 
like it's a very particular click. Um, but he will listen to the way those that sound bounces off of objects in his area. Um, to figure out what's around him. Right. But it's really, um, to, yeah. the, to the point where he can climb trees, go on hikes by himself in the wilderness. And, and you mentioned riding a bike. Uh, it's not just riding a bike in unfamiliar environments. He will ride a bike in traffic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these are the things that he's trying to teach to children. And I'm, I'm, I think that's the core mission of his organization. But um, there's some great audio in that episode of Invisibilia um, of him working with a kid. Um, yeah, it's just really remarkable. Um, and one of my favorite sort of throwaway lines in the whole thing is the blind leading the blind, but no, really (laughs) what's going on. Yeah. But I mean, even if, so when I first heard it, I was like, Whoa, I have no idea what this means. When I heard that phrase, blindness is a social construct. Um, I was like, I need to hear, you know, what is this person talking about? Um, but you can apply this way of thinking to so many things. And it really, I mean, it really opened up my thinking about a lot of stuff. Um, and of course I've thought about similar things in realms like education, when we talk about learning disabilities and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm not in the K through 12 world, but thinking about things like special education and, um, the role of paraprofessionals and all these different things when it comes to difference. Well, yeah. Yeah. One one of the most famous examples of this kind of thinking is uh, what's called the Pygmalion effect, which you, I'm sure you're as familiar with as I am, if not more so. Um, but the it's been well studied and well documented that that it really does happen. But a sort of the founding myth is a story, probably apocryphal, um, about a teacher who was a first-year teacher who was given a group of students and accidentally came to believe that she was had been given the gifted class. Hmm. Um, and to be clear, I am using gifted in its actual original meaning. I'm not being euphemistic and referring to special ed. Um, no, yeah, totally actual, different. Thing. Actual, literal gifted. Yeah. High <laughs> That's what she thought she had. No. Mm-hmm. Um, in one version of the story I've heard, I'll, I'll link to, um, it's a Michael Neal audio program I've mentioned on the podcast before. He, in the way he tells the story, she had been given a, a sheet of paper uh, with their locker numbers on it and thought it was their IQs. Um, <laughs> but in any event, somehow there was a miscommunication. Um, it, so the story goes, that led her to believe she had the gifted class. And at the end of the school year, their grades were absolutely phenomenal. And the principal, you know, had a conference with her. It's like, what is going on in your classroom? Mm-hmm. You know, these, these grades are off the chart. And she's like, well, what? of course they're off the chart. You know, this is the gifted class. And he's like, no, that's the remedial class. <gasps> oh, oh um, my goodness. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. um but it's it's uh, various versions of that story are circulated in in conjunction with this effect. But it's a very well documented effect that if if you know given a teacher who does not know the abilities of their student, if they go in blind but are given information indicating those students are going to be more or less able, they the students will perform more or less ably. Mm-hmm. Um, again, because the teacher is going to set different limitations on what they can do, right. will have different expectations. Mm-hmm. Back to our subject. Um, of what they can do, and yeah. they'll they'll often rise to that or bump their heads on it if if it's a limit. This mm-hmm. yes, yeah. Um, God, that's a great story. That's so funny. Um, <laughs> well, that get, that gets back to something um, you know that's been important to me as a teacher, just as a general way of thinking. And the first time it happened, I couldn't like I couldn't wrap my head around it. Um, this might have been last summer um, in a class I was taking. 
for the first time I was meeting people who, uh, seemed really hung up on the fact that teachers can't quote unquote reach every student. Um, Mm -hmm. talking about things like, you know, you can't force a student to engage with a topic. You can't force them to do the work if they're not, if there's no buy-in whatsoever, you know, you Mm -hmm. you can give them opportunities for buy-in, but at the end of the day, um, you can't (laughs) save everybody and you can't make everybody achieve and you can't, you can't make everybody take something away. Um, but the conversation evolved into this sort of defeatist, um, like why even try to reach every student, that sort of thing. And that got so problematic for me um, and what it came back to. And I, you know, I had follow-up conversations with some of my colleagues and mentors and I walked away affirmed. Um, <laughs> but what I kept thinking was, how can you be in this line of work and not think that it's worthy to try to help every mm-hmm. student get something. Like, why are you here if you're not here for everyone? <laughs> like, who, like, obviously, everyone comes with different set of challenges, um, whatever those may be. But mm-hmm. if you are already decided that you're not going to – there are certain people that you're going to willingly give up on. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're going to write off a certain percentage of the class. Yeah. No, I can believe it. So it's sort of the opposite of that. It's It's like I'm giving myself permission to – uh, mm-hmm. recognize the the obviously failing humans, you know. Right, right. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm of two minds of it because obviously I just told the Pygmalion effect story, so <laughs> I'm familiar with with the counter argument, you know, that it is possible supposedly. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. I, I think I think to a certain extent, um, I think you have a responsibility, you know, if you are if you are as you say in that line of work to try. Um, you know, to present those mm-hmm. opportunities to try to reach everyone mm-hmm. and to not assume that you're going to fail with some percentage. Um, you probably are, but you don't have to go in thinking that. And if you don't go in thinking that, maybe you will make that a much smaller percentage. Mm-hmm. Um, on the other hand, I, I am also thinking of in, in particular um, at the collegiate level. Um, to some extent, though, it depends, I, I think, whether I would judge them harshly or not. And I am not a teacher, so, <laughs> you know take this with a gigantic grain of salt, you and any other teachers listening. So much I would so. also think, though, to to a certain extent, I'm kind of okay with that viewpoint as long as they are completely open to the idea that anybody who walks through their door, like any given individual who comes in, might be able to be reached, to be safe, yes. to be into it. Yes. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's it's okay to assume you won't save everybody. You won't pass everybody. Um, that not everybody's even going to finish your class and right. that there's nothing you can do about that as long as you are not deciding in the first week of class who those people are yeah. or, or especially before, yeah. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. No, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're there to reach who you can reach. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this is, you know, this might sound a little bit, this is elitist and probably the opposite of good teaching thinking that what I'm about to say, but I, I also, I would never want a teacher to not give appropriate resources to somebody who could do amazing things with the material and the time of the teacher because they are spending all their time trying to reach somebody who is willfully fighting them. I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? No, and those are those are you know those choices happen on the day to day. It happens based on the the classroom and the you know, like mm-hmm. it's it's hard to judge those moments and like right, and even measure right. them. Yeah, yeah. But I hear what you're saying. Um yeah, so I guess I guess this does get back to the idea of tempering expectations because I am 
extremely realistic about what the end of my class, you know, the end of the semester um, can and will look like. Um, but at the start, yeah, I'm, I'm going to take as open of a stance as I can. But like you said, um, you know, and in my case, because I teach a lot of first year students, um, some of them won't even be coming back to my institution. Some of them won't even be coming Mm -hmm. back to college at the end of the semester, maybe at the end of the school year. Um, Right. Some of them might be gone by the end of the semester. Yeah. Like some of them, You can stop seeing somebody seven weeks in and they might not even be on campus after that. Yeah. I might not even know what happens to them until a couple weeks later and I find out they've withdrawn, you know. Um, So I'm, I would say, completely a realist about um, the conditions of my students' lives and our lives together. Um, But yeah, at the same time, I think... I don't know. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, I can't even pose this as a question. I'm thinking about the role of hope in all of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think as our, um, as our darling father would say, you um, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, um, I have a, a, a David Allenism I'm fond of that I think I misquoted the last time I said it. And I'm probably going to misquote it again. But um, he says something very much along the lines of hope for the best, prepare for the worst, shoot down the middle. Oh, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, sure. Which I which I I like. I'm not good at any of those except for hope for the best. But you know, <laughs> uh, as much as I as much as I bitch and moan and talk about the dark side of human nature on this podcast, I am <laughs> super duper optimistic to the point that it it really annoys Courtney and she doesn't believe anything hopeful I say. Oh my god, that's really funny. Okay, I I shouldn't say it that strongly. She <laughs> believes plenty of hopeful things. I say. Mm-hmm. Just, no, yeah, I definitely. Um, I mean, in my evolving understanding of myself, I definitely think. I'm a good part realist and a good part optimist. Um, mm-hmm. I think the parts of me that might appear pessimistic really are just me grappling with reality. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying over time, kind of you know, talking about uh, practical things you can do with expectations. Um, I've heard various timescales for this given uh, and various sources ranging from Bill Gates to um, I'm actually forgetting who the other sources are, but I don't actually know where this comes from. I will link to at least a couple places that mention this idea, though. But there's this idea that floats around in, in time management and project management and even tech journalism that we way overestimate what we can do and what can change mm-hmm. in the short run, but we way underestimate what can happen in the long run. Um so I, I think if Bill Gates did say anything along these lines, it's probably something along the effect of, you know, we, we are very, very bad in the in, in, in predicting what's going to change in technology in the next year or two huh. in the fact that we overestimate how far we're going to get. But, like, we always way underestimate what we're going to achieve a decade from now. Oh, that's so um, interesting. The way I've heard it said in, in more of a personal growth time management sense is um, we, we underestimate – we're, excuse me, we oh, we way overestimate what we're going to be able to achieve in a day or a week or even in a month, but we also way underestimate what we can achieve in a year or two. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I think as I get older, I'm getting better at, at balancing that and tempering. And, you know, when I have a plan for what I'm going to do on a certain day or in a week even, you know, realizing <laughs> I need to be a little bit pessimistic mm-hmm. about what I'm going to get done in that time frame. But or to realistic. also keep in mind, I think that's the thing, well, though, is you just called it pessimistic. Yeah. But is that pessimistic <clears throat> if it's just the material reality? 
Yeah, you know, that's a very good point. Um, it's a very good point. Could could just say it's it's realism. Mm, um, sorry, carry on. <laughs> no, that's okay. It's it's a good point. But you know, I, I try to be realistic, and and you know, I would even say I don't even know that pessimistic is the wrong thing to say because. Mm-hmm. You know, in certain circumstances, it may be realistic to say, yeah, I'm going to get a ton done on that day because of this and this and this. But I generally try to be, to be, to err on the side of, I'm not going to get that much done. Hmm. Um, now, I'm not good at that, but I'm better at that than I used to be. Gotcha. I'm saying, I'm not going to get much done today. I'm not going to get much done this week. I am open to it happening. I'm going to try. <laughs> but, you know, I'm yeah. not going to, you know, I've got, I have uh, 22 projects on my project list for work right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am not going to finish eight of them this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mean there's going to be eight left. I mean, I am not going to get to the number that is eight. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to break through the one third of these done this week barrier. Mm-hmm. There's just no way. I know there's no way. Now, if it happens, I'll be happy. Right. But I don't think my expectation is the reason I'm not. The reason I'm not is because I only have a week. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, you know, it's a job. There's stuff going on all the time. <laughs> on the other hand, on the other hand, I am going to get all of them and way more done this year, and I know that. And that's why they're projects and not like long-term goals or visions or, you know, things that I might get to if I have time someday in the future. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so maybe I'm thinking pessimist isn't quite right, but maybe you're just a bar lowerer, you know? <laughs> you just scooch it down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, and re- I mean, realist isn't really a bad term. When I think realist, though, I think realism is a word that – in the terms we're talking about, when you're being realistic about something's prospects or someone's prospects, I often feel like that is is a little bit misused hmm. because it is so often used as a counterpoint to somebody who is, quote, unrealistic um, in the sense of being of being exaggerated or, or dreaming or, you know, it's realism is almost always used as sort of a, a proxy for pessimism. Hmm. A dream pressure. Yeah, when I think when I think of being a realist, I think that's you know, I would think that would be more like you're being you you should be aimed to be data driven. You should aim to like really <laughs> take into account the facts on the ground and think about you know what is realistically possible. Mm-hmm. And that will often be in the in the direction of negative. But I don't know. That's why I kind of prefer pessimism because I feel like I'm being a little bit clearer hmm. that I'm not just tempering the 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 bad side. I'm also tempering the or excuse me, not just tempering the good side and bringing it back down to earth. I'm also tempering the bad side and bringing it up from people who say, well, you're never going to get that done. <laughs> yeah, no, that's interesting. Maybe, maybe I'm just so, I'm just such a, a deep realist that I can't see it any way, but like a neutral <laughs> way. <laughs> well, and it, I mean, if you are thinking of it that way, that's, you know, with no valence on it, then yeah, yes, I think yeah, it's yeah. the right word. <laughs> yeah. You know, no, I hear the way you, you use it, I do like then. Sure. We can agree. Yeah. Um, for sure. Um, do you want to talk about marshmallows? Marshmallows. Tell me about marshmallows. Um, oh, I know where you're going. Yay! But, but I yeah, knew you still, would. still, still, um, still tell I was me. Like, I watched this whole thing today. I was like, Max probably knows all this Wal- anyway. Walter, Walter Mitchell? Yeah. Okay, um, yes. Tell me about marshmallows. Yes. So in the um, late 60s or early 70s, um, this researcher, uh, Walter uh, Michel, Michel. Um, yeah, I have no idea how to pronounce uh, it. It might be more like Michel, but I can't remember for sure. Um, Once again, biggest hypocrite in the world about <laughs> last name pronunciation. <laughs> yeah, and I just heard, well, I heard an announcer say it. I don't think I technically heard him say it in this video I watched, um, which I can put into show notes. Um, he was giving a, 
a keynote lecture, I think, at the University of Michigan sometime in the last couple years. But he was referencing what he's most known for and the work he's done since this work, um, what is now known as the Stanford Marshmallow Experiment. Um, Again, late 60s or early 70s, I believe, was the original um, incarnation of this thing. Um, But he was studying... um, you could call it willpower, um, whether or not children could delay gratification um, if there was some sort of greater reward coming that was better than the um, current offering. So in most versions of it, um, the participant who was a child um, would get to pick some sort of treat like a marshmallow or some pretzels or some Oreo cookies or some M&Ms. And the experimenter, um, either himself or someone helping would put the first quantity of that treat in front of the child and say, okay, you can either wait 20 minutes and I will bring you two Oreo cookies. Um, or you can go ahead and have this one right now. But if you have this one before the 20 minutes, I'm sorry, that's all there is. But if you wait till I come back, I can bring you another. Um, it was that sort of setup. Um, and in most of the cases, um, they found that it's very hard to wait when you have something, um, when you have a reward in front of you. It's hard to wait for a reward that could possibly be better. Well, no, I shouldn't say possibly. You know it's going to be better. Um, mm-hmm. There will be another Oreo cookie or another marshmallow. Yeah, I have to assume that if I was uh, participating in the Stanford marshmallow experiment, not to be confused with the Stanford prison experiment, oh, um, that uh, I have to assume if I was one of the participants, I would have probably eaten the marshmallow before the instructions were given. <laughs> um, I will link to this also. <laughs> Walter Michel was on Stephen Colbert, and Colbert just started eating them. <laughs> <laughs> he did. No, that's exactly what he did. And then uh, the researcher just kept making fun of him the whole time, talking about those people mm-hmm. who can't wait. Um, yeah. And he since um, he actually, I think, just released a book within the last year, question mark, um, following up on this, this idea and all of the different versions of the experiment that have been done over the years um, about the idea of willpower and... Mm-hmm different ways to, um, better harness it. Cause he, you know, his, one of his arguments in, um, this keynote talk I listened to, um, like we all know what this looks like. Um, we all know someone struggling to stay on a diet or, um, <laughs> you know, we can talk about new year's resolutions, um, or his big joke is, you know, resist any type of temptation, like whether you're a dieter or like Bill Clinton and <laughs> you need mm-hmm. to resist the interns. Um, right. Like this, this idea of willpower and being able to, um, you know, look forward to a bigger reward. It's hard when you have, um, when you have something, as he says, like something that's hot right in front of you, you know, mm-hmm. like there's a current reward right now. It is smaller, but it's also right now. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, we strongly discount the future. Um and uh that's the I don't know the book that you're mentioning right now that he just wrote. I yeah, I am right. familiar with the experiment from another book I'll recommend because we can never recommend too many books. Um <laughs> uh, I know our listeners have nothing to do in their lives except for read things that I link to. But yeah. uh Willpower by um I'm forgetting the name of yeah, Willpower. Oh, uh, uh, John Tierney, who is a journalist, and Roy mm-hmm. Baumeister, who is also a uh, social psychologist. Um, 
they they talk about among other things the the marshmallow experiment uh, and David Allen's getting things done. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So, um, okay, the book <laughs> the book came out at the end of 2014. It's just called the Marshmallow Test, <laughs> mm. um, and the subtitle is Mastering Self Control. Um, yeah. Which which covers, I assume, more more of his more recent research and other people's follow ups and yeah, no, because it sounds like there have been a lot of iterations of this over time mm-hmm. um, of of the famous Stanford marshmallow prison experiment. Uh, yeah, you give the marshmallows uniforms and weapons and see what happens. Yeah. So um, you, my first subject, are a prisoner, and you do not get any marshmallows. You, my second subject, are a guard, and you get one marshmallow. Wait. But if I you serve your wrong. sentence, you get two marshmallows? So you can be paroled now and get one marshmallow, oh my God. or you can be in here another seven years. Wait. We're doing psychology! <laughs> Yay! Uh, yes. So, yes, which, yes. so is this the one where like people were delivering fatal shocks to... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, and I think it was like that the uh scene in Ghostbusters, um something with shapes and, and ESP. Yeah. Mm. Um mm-hmm. <laughs> Is it a marshmallow? No, I'm sorry, it was a star. <laughs> ah! <laughs> yes, yes. No, it was interesting. Um so I I was thinking of this um because I've been thinking about um the role of anticipation and trying to figure out, and here's where I was wondering, I was like, okay, is this, is this, I might have to jam this in. Does this relate? Um, but thinking about what happens when we have things to look forward to. So when we're, or, or bad things, even, you know, we say look forward to usually in a, in a positive way. Um, but even when you're bracing for something, you're anticipating something bad, mm-hmm. um, Oh, I didn't even realize it, but in prepping, I was thinking about moments like waiting to walk into what I knew would be an unpleasant meeting at work. Mm. Awful, awful feeling. Um, especially yeah, it because, will ruin a week for me if I've got one like scheduled a day or two out. Oh, I hated it. Or if it was late enough in the day that I had to do a lot of work ahead of it. But I would mm-hmm. never quite feel prepped or braced enough for it. Right. Yeah. So I was thinking about that sort of in, the anticipation angle of expectation. You know, not just ex- I expected it to be a bad meeting, but I was so sure of it that it was changing my morning to prepare mm-hmm. for it. Right. Um, yeah. You're, yeah. You're making me think of something interesting too that happens that. Um, it's happened. It happens all the time. But I'm going to use an example from a previous job because, again, I don't want to say too much about where I work now um, beyond the fact that it is it is a business where we spreadsheets and we powerpoints and we look out at things. Um, but uh, at a previous job, I had a, a meeting I was invited to. It might have been the next day. It might have been two days out. It was at least a day away though when I got the invitation, and it was from mm. my boss's boss. And this was like. This was in a very tumultuous year. It was after a shakeup um, in management, which, I, it frankly, was a coup. It was, mm, uh, you know, some mm-hmm. managers got together and got another big manager thrown out and sort of took over and reversed a year's worth of decisions. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of bad blood generated, mm-hmm. um, <clears throat> and at some point 
in the course of the year that I was now in, which was already a lousy year, boss's new boss uh, sends me an invite to a meeting that had a it had a fairly oblique subject line. I don't remember exactly what it was, but mm-hmm. you know something like you know work role discussion, something like that. Um, and, and already this year, like my boss had had essentially three teams that were under him, something like 24 people in total. Um, and then he got knocked down to where he'd been five years previously, where it was just my team that he was over. Mm. Um, and there was a lot of wrangling about like titles. Like he was trying, he, he claimed this was forced on him. I think he was doing it for other reasons, but like he tried to get me and the other supervisor in our department, um, to get our titles sort of demoted, like Ugh. not to have any pay taken away, but you know, yeah. just to sort of have to be line workers, although we were still responsible for all the same nonsense. Yikes. Anyhow. So I was already ticked off and already not in a good place. And then I get this like work role discussion meeting invite. No, no body text. <laughs> It's an hour-long meeting. It's more than a day away, and I was losing my mind. I was completely losing my shit about this. I went to talk to my boss about it, who at that point I didn't really trust and was kind of mad at, but, you know, I didn't really have anything else to go off of. Mm -hmm. Um, At this point, too, I had also been looking for a job in another city for a while at this point, and I had reason to believe that somebody had gotten a resume I printed off of the printer. Oh, jeez. So I was, you know, it was, I I won't go into all the details of that, but suffice it to say, it was, it was not clear to me whether or not my, my looking around in the world was, had yet been discovered by anybody at work. Mm -hmm. Um, As it turns out, now this is why this is an interesting story, because yes, I had this expectation and it completely ruined a day or more of my, of my work and my experience. When I got to the meeting, it actually turned out the reason for the meeting was my boss was in trouble. Hmm. Uh, Complaints had been made about him, allegations by other parties. And I, along with several other people, now I was the first of the several other people, so I I didn't have anybody telling me what was going on. But I, among several other people, was being brought in and asked what I thought was going on. And it was it was very oblique in the meeting as well. It took me like half an hour of this hour-long meeting to figure out what we were even talking about because hmm. they were all very general questions. Oh, my gosh. But I was being asked in, in a very oblique general way to corroborate or, or disprove what had been said. Sure. About they were what fishing. was going on with this guy. They were fishing. Yeah. They were fishing for something in particular, and they found something in particular because all of our stories, as it turns out, lined up um, – to varying degrees. I mean, I didn't have as much of a beef as the people who made the complaint. Sure. I had a very different beef. Um, <laughs> but yeah. all of our stories lined up on certain key points. And ultimately what happened, and, and I mean, by the end of the meeting, I was feeling pretty good. Because it was clear to me, like, all, for everything that had gone wrong, whatever part of it was was my immediate manager's responsibility, he was about to be held accountable for that mm-hmm. and things were going to change. Yeah. Um, and within a couple of months they did. And, um, you know, this job ultimately did not turn out great for me, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I had been trying to negotiate for a certain change in role and location for a while right. before I'd started looking for jobs elsewhere. And as a result of this, I was able to do so. Mm-hmm. And I knew by the end of that meeting that that was going to be a very good possibility for the outcome. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is interesting in two ways, you know, germane to our discussion in two ways. First of all, um, the power of expectations to ruin the immediate moment, Mm. (laughs) you know, or to make the immediate moment better. If we're talking about anticipation, you know, they say anticipation is often better than the real thing. Um, but also the fact that, 
uh, expectations can sometimes be wrong. Oh, duh, in, yeah. In mm-hmm. really extraordinary mm-hmm. ways. Like, you know, we, we talked at the beginning about expectations that prove themselves, where you find the evidence or create in the other's behavior mm-hmm. the evidence for your expectation. But, I mean, sometimes they're just plain flat out wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, it's hard, though. Um because we're, we hear so many stories and we have so many patterns in our brain that tell us when a man leans out of a, the window of a vehicle to yell at a woman, it's going to be something bad. And mm-hmm. when, a, when, right. when your employer sends you an email that <laughs> references your work, um, but with no context whatsoever, it's going to be bad. And in this mm-hmm. case, it was bad, but not for you, fortunately, at that moment right. anyway. Um, you were you were needed to serve a role, but it was not related to your well-being necessarily in that mm-hmm. moment. Um, no, no. But this type of thing happens all the time interpersonally. Um, you know, it's sort of a relationship trope, the idea of when someone says, we need to talk. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It is something bad or it is something at least jarring and um, that will invoke change. Um and that's scary. So sometimes in that case, not knowing what to expect, <laughs> we start filling in the gaps um, with whatever stories and patterns we have. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think leads to some of that. You know, we brace and we worry um, right. so much. Um, I don't know. But it's hard. Because I'm, cause I'm thinking <laughs> Expectations about... Expectations are hard. It's hard. That's the life lesson today. It's not... It's a spectrum. It's it's not one thing or the other today. It's just... No, it's, it's just hard sometimes. Because I'm thinking, too, about when I need to... Um, I'm trying to think of a, a good example. When I certainly need to have a serious conversation with someone, but I need to arrange it <laughs> so that it can happen. Um, I had that case with a... A student one time where a situation had sort of blown up and I just really needed to have a, a non-email conversation about it, although we had been emailing a lot because the student kept, um, you know, missing me like I wasn't running into her anywhere. She wasn't attending mm-hmm. stuff, um, was missing appointments even, stuff like that. So eventually right. it's like, okay, like this stuff has come to a head and I don't think we're going to solve it in email. Like I think we need to be humans and see each other um in meat space yeah not just hate that term my space wait that's a thing why are there so many things it's it's things all the way down meat space yeah that sounds disgusting is that like a porn it is disgusting (laughs) probably (laughs) spell meat (laughs) but it means it means it means where the physical bodies are are you shitting me I am not shitting you. Bleep out of this. This is so stupid. M e a t s p a c e. Meat space. <laughs> where the bodies. This is know, the this flesh. is the episode where I. Flesh. <laughs> this is meat. the episode where I spell things. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> title. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I think the title is probably going to be "You're a Blueberry." Oh my god. Yeah. Yeah, that very well could be. <laughs> this, or the uh, Stanford Marshmallow Prison Experiment. Yes. Let's just mess it all up. We solve oh, psychology. Boy. Um, mm. I was saying a real-ish thing. It was about a meet You face. had to oh, meet yeah. this person yes. in real life, not over yeah. a computer. But I, so I knew that the next gesture I needed to make in this email exchange was I needed to, um, 
invite her to a meeting in my office. Um, I knew that that's what we needed to do next. Um, but I drafted that email maybe five times trying to think of, um, how to clearly, but also, um, you know, in a sort of straightforward, non-alarming way, like tell her, Mm um, that this is what I would like to happen next, that I thought it would be best for both of us, that it would provide the most clarity, but also get us going, would help us establish whatever consequences there needed to be, um, but I didn't need it to be a scary, we need to talk sort of gesture either because right. I didn't want it to be firm, but also kind yeah, and approachable. And, and again, realistic, I needed to be grounded because at the time I did not have enough information to know how to react yet. And that was part of why I needed to talk to her um, mm-hmm. because there was no sensitive way to, to ask the questions I needed to ask and just sort of let her talk. Cause that's what I needed to happen was I needed to, you know, ask an open-ended question and see how she responded basically <laughs> to know whether we were, you know, even relatively in the same ballpark. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I, I wanted to be clear so that she knew what to expect that like, Hey, this was a, you know, come to Jesus meeting. Um, mm-hmm. But that that's okay. That's just what needs to happen now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then whatever expectation she had when she walked into that room, you know, she's bringing that with her. But when she gets there, what she sees is that there's an empty table in front of you with a marshmallow on it. <laughs> she can either go to prison or eat the marshmallow. One or the other. These <laughs> that's are, right. These are the choices. Um, and then the, the experimenter is going to ask you to administer an electric shock. Oh, my God. This is not how it works. For the record, I do not give my students marshmallows or electroshocks. Um, <laughs> neither. Um, yeah, no, and I think maybe that's a good a good point, too, and something that we all can keep in mind. Um, that you don't give electric shocks to your students? Well, heavens yes, keep that in mind. I, I like my job. I'd like to keep it. I perform it <laughs> legally. <laughs> um, no, that... And I, I feel like I did this in a previous episode, too, where I just i am trying to make myself sound like the most gracious human being, which in all reality is not true. <laughs> no, um, no. I'm very clumsy physically and figuratively sometimes. Um, well, and as you know, I am the most gracious human being. Oh, my God. <laughs> sure. I'm picturing as you, you know, I am completely full of Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm picturing you during the Kermit Muppet Arms. Yeah. <laughs> picture of grace um no but i i do aspire to be gracious and graceful so what i was thinking of thinking back on that that experience with that student was that when i have to have those tough meetings one-on-one with students um i do try to remember that when they walk in the door they could be at any emotional state you know um and they could be expecting the worst. They could be expecting a really unpleasant meeting. Um, so I have a kind of, and it's going to sound weird, I have a kind of cool power in that moment to um, sort of transcend their expectations because I want, in most cases, you know, I can't think of a, a time where I, it was a completely non-productive meeting. But, you know, I, I want it to be 
an open conversation. Of course, I have some sort of objective, but it's going to be shaped by how they react to me. Like I'm open to that. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah. So anyway, so anyway, maybe the, the positive takeaway there is remember that you, no matter, you can't control how people are when they, uh, interact with you. When you, when you come by people, you don't know how they are. Um, but you can help shape how they walk away from that interaction. Hmm. I don't know. Especially when you give them the second marshmallow. You have been listening to Priority. Once again, for complete show notes, or if you'd like to send us feedback via email or subscribe to the show, visit us on the web at priority.fm. If you enjoyed the program today, please go to iTunes and leave us a positive rating and review, as that will help new listeners find the show. Also, if you're interested in getting updates or communicating with us via tweets, follow us on Twitter, where we are at PriorityFM. That's at P-R-I-O-R-I-T-Y-F-M. Thanks again for listening. So before we go, instead of just putting in a random funny bit that got cut from the conversation or our after conversation uh, BS, um, never. I, <laughs> us, <laughs> the listener, never. <laughs> um, I thought it would be good to let everybody know for the third time, we're coming to the time again when we do something other than what we normally do on the podcast, when we take a break and when we talk about a uh, cultural work of some kind. Um, for episode number one, we talked about the movie Groundhog Day in depth. Uh, episode 14, we did a lengthy review and discussion of Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. And, uh, coming up on episode number 27, we will be talking about something Katie will tell you about. (laughs) And I drum rolled for you. Um, For this one, um, somewhat timely for reasons that will become clear, um, I decided that I would like to revisit Harper Lee's novel To Kill a Mockingbird, um, a classic among high school and college reading lists um, and lists of classic literature um, for American writing. Um, So many listeners may be familiar with it already, um, either the novel itself or the classic... uh, was it Gregory Peck? I'm trying to think of who was in the movie. Um, anyway, the old-timey movie version. Um, and I'm sure there have been various others. Um, but yeah, if you would like to join along in the conversation, um, I will be rereading, um, and Max is reading for the first time, mm-hmm. um, a magical experience, um, the novel. Um, but you might also be interested because um, Harper Lee's, you could say, long-awaited second novel, um, Ghost at a Watchman is the title, has just been released. Um, and under very interesting circumstances um, that if you if you are going to read or you have already read or picked up a copy of um, Ghost at a Watchman, you might want to read into um, its, its origin story. Um, very interesting and, and something that we certainly could end up talking about um, some weird, sneaky, creepy things might have been going on there. Um, but we'll get into that. Um, but yeah, yeah. 
returning to um, a classic of required reading lists everywhere. To kill mm-hmm. a mockingbird. Except for apparently wherever I was for high school and I college. Because you read all your required reading, right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure. Yeah, you know. I mean, I, I, I did sort of um, Cliff's Note and, and fake my way through Huckleberry Finn. Um, but it had been read to me at a young age, so I don't feel like I really cheated that badly. Fair enough. Um, other than that, though, yes, I did read everything I was mm-hmm. supposed to have read. Yeah. So we'll catch Max up and, and you can join us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, episode 27, Remedial Reading Class for Max. <laughs> Catch on up. Mm-hmm.